Welcome to studentofthebible.com. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm a Bible student. I'm glad you are, too. Thank you so much for joining. Pray for discernment and ask God to show you how you can share this information with others and be a blessing. Welcome to my love podcast, part two. Will Ferrell, the comedian and actor, once said this about love. Before you marry someone, you should first make them use a computer with a really slow internet service just to see who they really are. (laughs) I like that. In our last podcast, we uncovered the complexity of the word love as it's used in the Bible. We determined that our English word love is rather limited compared to the Greek and the Hebrew words for love because we have just one word, love. And we use it when we love a pizza, we love a sunset, we love a song, we love our mom, we love our child, and we love our spouse or our boyfriend or our girlfriend. And each one of these uses this word love, but they're different intensity and different meaning, and yet we use the same word. We discussed that the Greek, the language of the Old Testament, had four primary words for love, eros, storge, philia, and agape. The word agape expresses that deep and constant love of the perfect God who agape loves us, even though we're unworthy. And then we examined that in Hebrew, which is the original language of the Old Testament, there were also several words for love, ahav, hased, hashak, chabab, and cheshak. Ahav was the word to describe that soul-filled friendship love like between Jonathan and David in the Old Testament, selfless love. Hased is loyal love, and this was described by Jesus in the Good Samaritan story. Hashak, love means to be attached to or connect or join together. Chabab, love means to cherish with affection. And then finally, chashak, love means to love out of desire and choice. God made love the highest of all his commands. And as we reminded ourselves in the last session, loving was a command, not a suggestion. John 13, verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Today, we're going to talk about how to love, not who to love. We're told to love everyone. Does God love us because we're always deserving of love? Does God love us because we've done all the right things, said the right things, read the right things, and given to the right charities? No. Agape love, God's love, is undeserved love. It is a love that is not requiring anything in return. There's no hidden agenda The really good news is, and this really is good news, there is nothing we can do or say to deserve God's love, or conversely, to stop God from loving us. He loves us unconditionally. This agape love is God's will for us to have for each other. It is a love for each other that is known to us from the action of God giving us his only son, Jesus Christ, who died for us. 
This is not a love that is deserving because of some action or value seen in the recipient. Agape love is a deliberate choice without cause except for the fact that we're all made in the image of God and he first loved us. As the author Francis Chan says, this is crazy love. But guys, we get this love thing all wrong. We're emotional beings, right? God created us that way. We respond to many things around us in in an emotional way. We become passionate about certain people, certain ideas, certain books, certain news feeds and podcasts. Conversely, we can become pretty passionately angry about certain ideas, certain people, certain podcasts, certain news feeds that don't fit into our preconceived notion of what we feel in our heart. We pride ourselves on being able to determine what makes us comfortable or uncomfortable. We like to decide for ourselves who and what we love and do not love. We like to, let's be honest, be wise in our own eyes. We like to embrace the comfortable, the ideas and the people that make us feel good and Dismiss the people and ideas that do not fit into our comfort zone. God lovingly gave us the ability to love by choice. That's called free will. Yes, free will is a gift from God. God doesn't force us to love him or others. He loves us unconditionally, regardless of how we feel about him choice is a good thing. We need to be careful. First, we need to understand that there is a difference between agape love, which is loving our neighbor unconditionally and undeservedly, with idolizing, emulating, blind worship, and turning off your brain. We can love all people with God's help, but not love their ideology. Timothy warned us about the danger in blindly aligning our passions with unsound doctrine just because we admire a person's oratory style or their cult of personality or the way the message they deliver makes us feel. Listen to what Timothy had to say in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 4. The time is coming when People will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they'll turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, unquote. We do have the ability to choose whom we follow and what we hold as true. We do have free will to choose what ideas we love, what people we love, what cultural norms we love. We do have a choice, but God commands that we love everyone. Loving everyone, though, does not mean loving their behavior. The danger comes when we surround ourselves with people who suit our own passions and fulfill our own ideas about what is good and right without first seeking God's discernment. When was the last time you prayed about how to process something you heard or read? 
Are we supposed to love their values and their worldviews without consulting God's word? The answer is no. The prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, he warned us about this. This is in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve, unquote. What a confusing thing to say, Prophet Jeremiah. What a Debbie Downer. The heart is a deceitful thing. Well, Jeremiah was a prophet around 600 BC, and he saw that the nation of Judah, which was the southern part of Israel, was on a slippery slope toward destruction. Jeremiah here is trying to warn his people that their hearts are inclined towards sin. If we feel it in our heart, it must be right, right? Well, following our heart is not always a good and wise thing, according to Jeremiah. It seems that many in Jeremiah's day were following their own heart instead of following God. Hmm. They were deciding in their own hearts what was right and wrong. But what if our hearts are inclined towards sin? The devil's a clever guy. What if he packages fuzzy, warm feelings and worldview ideologies that are sinful and harmful, but they're wrapped up in shiny paper and proselytized by popular and influential people. The prophet Jeremiah reminds us that God searches the heart and examines the mind to discover our true intentions. God sees our heart attitude. Well, that's confusing. If God has given us free will, then how do we know what's right and true to love and follow? There are so many ideas floating around. Seems like Solomon in the Old Testament understood this conundrum when he wrote Proverbs 3. We're going to look at Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil, unquote. Okay, so what does this have to do with love? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. How can that help me to know what to love? And how can I avoid being wise in my own eyes? Paul in the New Testament, well, he talks a ton about love and how to discern what to love and how to love. He explains that, yes, we have free will to do whatever we choose, but there will be consequences. So he gives us this advice in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then 
you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will, unquote. So Paul says that the way we know what is good and right and true is not to follow the world and what the world dictates is good and right and true, but instead to renew our minds and focus on God. And then God will tell us what is good and pleasing and true. God will show us what is good and what is evil. God will show us how to love with honesty and sincerity. God will show us the right path to follow. Paul goes on to say a few lines later in Romans chapter 12, 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone, if it is possible as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, unquote. Do you see why Paul says we have to renew our minds and not conform to the world? There is no way we can love sincerely, hate what is evil, love what is good, and be devoted to each other in brotherly love by clinging to this world. Because in this world, our love and our devotion, let's be honest, have ulterior motives. I like the way my NIV study Bible explains it. Quote, we honor our bosses so they will reward us our employees so they will work harder, the wealthy so that they will contribute to our cause, the powerful so that they will use their power for us and not against us. We follow certain causes that fulfill our agenda. We surround ourselves with people who view the world the way we view the world. But God's way involves selfless love. As Christians, we're called to love and honor people because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ and because they've been created in the image of God, not because they can give us something in return, unquote. The Apostle Paul, well, he knew that we're fickle creatures and we tend to be passionate about the latest whim or fad, and we tend to be focused inward instead of outward. We only love what makes us feel good or 
what we can agree with. We love what lines up with our own sometimes made-up, self-serving ideals. We view the world through a certain lens, and we tend to believe that our experience dictates reality. And if the world doesn't line up with our experiences, then it has to be false. To quote from the author Alyssa Childers in her book, Another Gospel, Alyssa talks about how the world is now leaning towards prioritizing lived experience and identity rather than rationality and discovering and determining what is true. She says that people's lack of privilege and their oppressed status give them a greater discernment and a more complete view of the world. And then on the other hand, those with privilege and oppressor status are believed to have blind spots when it comes to understanding the world and discerning truth. And then she goes on to say that many Christians recognize the brokenness of our world, racism, poverty, exploitation, and rightly want to do something about it. She says, contemporary, quote, critical theory can be an attractive way of looking at the world because it may seem like a loving and others-centered approach, which is what we've been talking about in this podcast, right? And she continues, But the problem with critical theory is that it isn't just a set of ideas that influence how someone thinks about oppression. It functions as a worldview, a way of seeing the world that answers questions like, who are we? Why are we here? What's wrong with the world? What's the meaning of life? When people adopt the tenets of, quote, critical theory, their answers to these questions are filtered through that lens. Okay, well, what's wrong with defining the world in those terms? You know that the Bible says that we're human beings made in the image of a holy and loving and perfect God, and he wants us to love our neighbor, feed the hungry, clothe the poor. We just read that. The problem with what I just read, Alyssa Childers points out, is that this, quote, critical theory is that according to this new modern view, our identity is not found in who we're created to be, lovingly made in the image of God, but instead in how we relate to certain groups defined by our class, gender, sexual preference, etc. It's a messed up world, right? The Bible tells us that it was our rebellion in the Garden of Eden with the free will decision to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong instead of allowing God to teach us this, that has led us to what is wrong with the world today. We know that the promise in the Bible is that God will one day restore us to a perfect relationship with him and with others. Jesus died on the cross and took the punishment for our sins upon himself so that we could be made new again. But the author, Allison Childers, goes on and says, quote, But according to this new critical theory, the problem with the world is oppression, not our tendency towards sin and rebellion against God. And oppression is fixed by activism, raised awareness, and an overthrow of oppressive systems and their power, unquote. But according to the Bible, the meaning of life is to glorify God, and we're called to do good works. James chapter 2, verse 26 says, 
faith apart from works is dead. However, when we become focused on this critical theory, we take our eyes off of God's fundamental truths and his biblical morality, and honestly, we become very self-focused on a works-based gospel that focuses on actions over belief. Paul, I love Paul. In the New Testament, he gives us the following description of what love is. He explains that the more we become like Christ, the more we can show love to others and set aside our own desires and instincts and agendas. This was a letter that Paul had written to the people of Corinth. Now, they had been confused about what love meant, and they became morally corrupt and decided for themselves who and what and how to love based on their own definition. They had become wise in their own eyes. And this is Paul's response to how they should treat one another. This passage is probably familiar to you, but look at it now with new eyes. All our actions, all our talents, all our gifts mean nothing without love. This is found in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. But now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For now we know in part, and we prophesize in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part? disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, unquote. This is a well-known scripture, and it's often read at weddings, and it's been the subject of many sermons. But what is Paul saying here about love? Now, in the previous chapter, he was talking about the abuse of what we call spiritual gifts, 
And instead of the church welcoming each other's gifts and using them to build up and unify the church, people were jealous of each other's gifts and they were becoming prideful and boastful. So Paul's note in 1 Corinthians 12 that our talents are different for a purpose, just like a body has many parts, but each functions together as a whole and none is more or less important than the others. And he says, so it is with our talents. No one's talents are any more or less important. Instead of comparing ourselves to others and being jealous of one's talents versus our own, wanting to maybe take away what they've been given because it's unfair, he says, no, we should use all our different gifts together to bring glory to God and to not divide ourselves because we're all connected as one body and therefore we need to be careful about what happens both good and bad to the other parts of the body. Paul is telling us what real love is. Love makes all our talents and actions and gifts useful because without love, he says, nothing is gained. As we've discussed, love has become very divisive. We only see value in those people and ideals that fit into our own worldview. But the love that Paul's talking about is God's kind of love, which is directed outward towards others, not inward towards ourselves. It's completely selfless. But this kind of love is hard. It is not natural for us, and it goes against all our inclinations. It goes against what many of the self-help books and false teachers of our day say. This love is only possible through God's help. God is the one who can help us set aside our selfish desires to love without expecting anything in return. That's a pretty high goal. And think of how transformative this love could be. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongdoing. Love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, Paul says. But you would argue, yes, it does all the time. I've experienced it, or so-and-so has experienced it. But it wasn't love that failed. It was the failure of humans to love. When faith and hope are in line, you're free to love completely because you understand how God loves. Ask God to help you love everyone. And also, Start asking God to help you to discern what is good and right and true. Love what is good. Hate what is evil. Do not turn off your brain or be wise in your own eyes. Have a blessed day.